Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk with Andrea Hill, CEO of Hill Management Group. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, here in my home office in Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online. Still for the moment in exile, but uh, hopefully coming back to New York soon. That's very, very exciting. Fall's beginning. It's feeling good. Well, we've got a wonderful guest here. I'm super excited to welcome Andrea Hill. She's owner of the Hill Management Group, which has a number of different works brands under its umbrella. She's a consultant to the industry. I met her many years ago during her tenure at Rio Grande. And I spoke to her a few weeks ago and just thought, wow, she's one of the smartest cookies I've encountered in this business, has a ton of great insights into sales, marketing, and of course, the holiday. And so it was not a tough sell to get Rob to say, yes, we should have Andrea on. So welcome. You're there in, you just described as the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. Is that right? I am up in eastern central Wisconsin, not too far from Lake Michigan. Wow, that sounds lovely. Well, Andrea, you've been this force in the industry for as long as I've been in it. I met you when you were at Rio Grande, and that was your first experience with the jewelry industry. Is that right? It was. I did not even know the jewelry industry as an industry until I met Rio Grande. So tell us a little bit about your background, because I know it's different, or certainly (laughs) you've got some great experience that I didn't anticipate. I just assumed you'd spent your entire career in jewelry. Where did you begin when you were young? What was your first job? Well, first serious job, I mean, I did a lot of singing in bars, but first serious job would have been working for a retailer in Chicago, and it was a billiard store, but nobody was buying pool tables or not enough to make the business happy and healthy. So we bought some video machines and learned how to work them and then started selling video equipment. And then eventually we became the first major video rental chain in the country. We had 18 stores. Pre-Blockbuster? Pre-Blockbuster. In fact, I actually opened the first two Blockbuster stores as their supply person. So yeah, we were definitely pre-Blockbuster. Wow. What was the name of the chain? Video King. It was Billiard King, and then it became Video King. So that was fun because I learned all of retail and got immersed in the video industry and learned about, you know, opening up multi-store operations and managing multi-store operations and being neighborhood stores. Then when did, I'll have to bring it up because you surprised me when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, you spent years working with Playboy, right? Or for the Playboy Enterprises. So yes, I did. It was a great place to work. One of my best corporate experiences ever. So Christy was coming in to be the president. Christy Hefner and Hef, her dad, and you call him Hef. (laughs) Hef was leaving that role, but he was leaving his C-suite in place, which is hard for any senior executive to come in and take over when the old C-suite is all still there and still reporting to dad. So she brought in a group of managers to help her transform the business. And her vision was to shed the hotels and the clubs because they were huge money losers and build up licensing and then build a big direct marketing business. And the direct marketing business she wanted to build was video. So I came in to build up that business, but there was a lot of stuff we had to do before that could even be done. Like, you know, figuring out what to do with all of the stuff that came out of those Playboy warehouses and every club back room. So we had Playboy sheets and clubs and glasses and dishware. And and so we started two catalogs at that time. We started the Playboy catalog, which was all Playboy branded goods, all at like this 
completely written off zero cost stuff because it had just been sitting scattered all over the world in back rooms and warehouses. And then we also started the video catalog. So because it was paper, we had the opportunity to do this incredible selection of the video and the music, and we could carry to all kinds of tastes. You had all this experience and it has nothing to do with jewelry. I mean, (laughs) so how did you end up getting to jewelry? I think there was a clothing company in there. From there, I had the opportunity to become something that I've done a lot in the decades since then, which is this rent a CEO thing where you go to a company that's in trouble or has a big growth strategy that it wants to execute and doesn't have the talent in-house to do it. So I was going into companies and helping them achieve growth objectives as a senior executive. And then I landed, there was a catalog company and it was children's clothing, manufacturing and international direct mail distribution. And they were coming out of their second bankruptcy. So I went down there to be the president of that and get them back on their feet. And then when I was in Albuquerque, I met Alan Bell, and that was how I got introduced to the Bell Group and the jewelry industry. Wow. And that was mid-90s? So I met Alan in December of 95, and I started at Rio Grande just a couple of weeks later. It seems like you worked in a lot of really cool industries. What made you stay in jewelry? Not that jewelry isn't cool, mind you. It was the people. And it's a surprise to me too, Rob, because I like multi-industry experience. I think it makes you a more well-rounded executive. But I hadn't encountered an industry before where you made such close friendships with your entire supply chain. And when I started my consulting company, we do consult for other industries. And I have contacts that I've been working with since the early 80s. But jewelry is the bulk of it. And I think it's the relationships that just keep me here. And so tell us how is over the last... 13 years. That's a that's a good long stretch of running your own business. So tell us a little bit about what happens under the Hill Management umbrella. So at first, all I really wanted to do was consult. I had done a lot of corporate work for a lot of years and I just I just wanted to consult. And that was strategy works, but as I gave businesses advice, I have a strong background in technology. My graduate education is all around technology. So trying to help companies get prepared for this digital distance world that we're in today and preparing them for marketing that requires a lot of technology and comfort with the tools of the internet. And I found out we were making strategies that would be very good for the company, but they couldn't find partners to help them execute those strategies. So that's when I started Works Marketing. And you've been in a lot of different industries. Does that shape how you approach jewelry and the jewelry business? I sure hope so. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I set out on a career path that would expose me to a lot of industries, because every industry brings some strengths and some ways of working that are perhaps unique to the industry, but also very powerful and effective. And I wanted to make sure I learned as many of those as I could. Anything in particular that you think really has helped? Yeah, like in the apparel world and the video and music world too, they understand that You can't just wait for customers to come to you. So the approach to sales and marketing in those industries is very mature and constantly evolving. Whereas the jewelry industry evolved out of a model where, you know, you had a jeweler in town and that's who you went to for jewelry. And then you went to the, I don't know, the blacksmith for your metal goods. And it it came out of a model where you didn't have to sell and market. You had the expertise and therefore people came to you. And that doesn't work anymore. Uh, That's one way that my other industry experience helped me in jewelry. Playboy taught me about branding. I learned so much about what it meant to be a sophisticated brand organization at Playboy. Yeah, you've talked about rich content. And I wonder, you know, what do you communicate to your jewelry clients? 
you know, what do jewelers need to know about what these other industries have mastered? It, that it's not enough to just know how to do something or know how to sell something. There's not room for a whole bunch of generic jewelers anymore. You know, if you're just a generic jeweler carrying the same generic products that everybody else is carrying, then the only thing you can compete on is price. And of course, we sell luxury goods. We're not supposed to be competing on price. So then people say, well, the reason they come to me is service. <laughs> well, that's not good enough. Great service is the minimum standard necessary to compete. So I'm always pushing my customers to really dig deep into the answers to the questions. Who are you? What do you do that makes you different? And why do you matter? Because one of the things you always hear from jewelers is, well, we've been around and people trust us and we're 100 years old. Does that really work as well as it used to? No, it doesn't. Just because you've been around for a long time doesn't mean you know what you're doing. You have to be something else and do something else to attract a following. Is there any really interesting ways that people have been able to distinguish themselves and set themselves apart? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's some ways that are quirkier and others that are more mainstream, but I have a client, they have an architecturally and historically unique building. And so they both do custom wedding jewelry and they do wedding events. So the majority of their revenue and their profit actually comes from custom jewelry. But the draw is that you can do the whole experience there. But a lot of times it's really just a matter of finding your people. So I think about Tiny Jewel Box, they have a community of people that are in love with them and they care about social causes and they, they carry design work and they know their designers and they treat their customers as connoisseurs and collectors. And that's not for every customer, but it's for their customers and it works. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. You've talked about the need to have a rich content strategy, and that feels even more important these days. But can you elaborate on that? What does that mean? So if you know who you are and what you do that makes you different and why you matter, now you have the basis for storytelling. So if you know who your target is and you know who you are and what you're going to talk about, now you start buying products that fit with that theme and you merchandise your store and your website with those products that fit your story. And you have to justify every product that fits within your story. And that's how you end up with different products than the other retailers carry. If all your website is, is a product feed with an about page and a home page and a contact us page, it's completely insufficient. If you're a custom jewelry shop, you should be talking about what's happening at the bench. There's a jeweler called Designs in Gold up in California. And Jim, his specialty is really studying entomology. And then he makes these incredible metal sculptures of insects. And they become pendants and brooches and earrings. And there's this story about the natural world and what he studied and why this is his fascination. And you could talk for days about every single insect that he makes. And consumers eat it up. What we do is magical. In this industry, we take making jewelry for granted. But to the person who isn't exposed to the jewelry industry, it's mind-blowing. So we should tell stories about that. It sounds so rewarding if you're doing it right, and yet so complicated to get all those bits in place. I mean, does this require hiring a ton of people? <laughs> It takes a lot to produce that much content, yes. We have copywriters and graphic designers and technology designers. So, you know, we do need a whole staff to do that. 
usually what we'll try to do with every client is we will make sure there's somebody in-house that is capable of producing decent written copy. They have to be able to write well, they have to be able to spell correctly and have enough vocabulary, and they need to have good grammar because the internet is dependent on words. People love to see a pretty picture, but what brought you to that page? You search using words. So every website needs not only a lot of great words that are telling their story, it also needs a constant flow of new words because the search engines care about the quality of the content that you have, the recency of the new content, and the frequency of your content posting. Wow. To have the way you look at these things and the way you do things change as a result of COVID? No. I mean, the world is always changing. Sometimes the changes are more dramatic and sometimes they're less so, but the world's always changing. The process for getting to these answers hasn't changed. The urgency that a lot of companies are feeling to do the work is changed. People that I've talked to for years that kept saying, yeah, I need to do that at some time. That sounds like the right idea. Suddenly everybody's realizing they don't have time to wait. But the process of getting a company to understand what its unique story is, that process hasn't changed. How about how they communicate with people? Has that? Oh, that has changed dramatically. Back then I was trying to get people to do video meetings with me. And maybe one out of every 20 appointments would be willing to do a video meeting. That has changed. The statistics that I heard is that between March and May of 2020, we went through five years of technology evolution in those few months. And at the beginning, it was a ton of phone work and texting. Then they started doing more and more video meetings. And they did work that allowed customers to reduce their time in store without reducing the experience of buying the jewelry. And I assume all that will be sticky, that kind of behavior I mean, into 2021 and hopefully the less challenging time. Do you anticipate retailers still needing to do this kind of adaptive, you know, I'll meet you anywhere, drop off anything? I do. And I hope they recognize that. We need to be available according to the way the customer wants to communicate with us. For retail to remain relevant, we need to be that flexible with our customers and meet them where they live. Wow. One thing you mentioned, the kindness economy. Can you talk to us about what that is and how you see it evolving and what that means today? Yeah. So before the recession of 2008, everybody was willing to argue about whether or not climate change was real. After the recession, people stopped arguing about that if you think about it. The outliers still love to argue about it, but for the most part, people accept that climate change is real. And with that acceptance came a whole host of awarenesses. We have to be good to the earth and all of her inhabitants, that we need to pay attention to the world around us, that we are not the only thing that matters. My first exposure, though, was really through the apparel industry in the decades prior when we started having crises in places like Bangladesh, where factories were burning down. And the apparel industry was really put under intense scrutiny by consumers saying, we don't want to wear your stuff if you're abusing people to make it. You deal with, uh, when you do mentor work, is this mostly young designers? And what kind of advice do you give them as far as the industry? So it's not necessarily young designers. It's often new designers. But remember, a lot of people come to the industry as a second career. Lots of dentists come to the jewelry industry as a second act because they're used to using the tools and the materials. I have to be brutally honest with them because they all think they're going to come into the industry and tap into a network of a thousand independent retailers and sell their jewelry. And it doesn't work that way for them. On that note, in terms of young designers, in a piece you'd written, I believe for Forbes in 2018, where you talked about jewelry having a design dilemma, 
Do you still feel that way? And how do you? Mainstream jewelry has become far too genericized for its own good. Today's consumers find the typical jewelry store experience boring, but it's not just the stores that they find boring, they find the product boring. And so many women who could afford to buy a great pair of gold earrings will go to Kohl's and buy something that's plated because it's in a design that they like. And if people want unusual looking jewelry, they have to work really hard to find it. And they can today. They can go search on the internet and find all kinds of unique and unusual and beautifully designed jewelry and well-made by the way. Sometimes I hear people say, oh yeah, but it's all just junk art jewelry. And we bring these judgments to jewelry that doesn't look like traditional fine jewelry and just make the assumption that it's not well-made or that it won't stand up to a bench jeweler's standard. Hmm. I think about all the great boutique artisans out there and how much great design there is, but yeah, on that level of mainstream, sort of more basic jewelry. Yeah. Very, very unexciting. How do we address that? You start with the stories. When you do the work of saying, who are we and what do we do that makes us different? And then you take those answers and you apply them with discipline to your merchandise selection. You will suddenly discover that certain types of merchandise simply do not fit your story. When I started in direct marketing, the story that Hank Johnson told me was about Lillian Vernon. The mythology around Lillian Vernon was a woman in her 50s on the back of a donkey cart trundling through some mountainous region in South America looking for cool products to bring people. The adventurer spirit drove the Lillian Vernon catalog. And so I challenge all of our jewelry retailers, is the adventurer spirit driving your jewelry selection? Because if it's not, you're going to have genericized jewelry. Can you give us an example of how that would work in practice? Like if you have a certain mission to your store, how would you merchandise to that mission or to that vision or to that story? Yeah, so I'll go back to Steve and Melissa quick because they're a good example of this. So they have an internal mission of being ethical and responsible and very authentic. So when they consider designers that they're going to carry in their store, they have sort of a punch list of things that that designer has to be able to say yes to before they can be considered from a product standpoint. So they have a philosophy and they have a story and they have a vision of their customer and the product that they're going to carry has to get run through all of those filters before it makes it into the store. Well, Andrea, thank you. Any parting words or final thoughts for the industry? Yeah, that it should be fun. <laughs> we have a requirement here at the company when, when capacity is limited, we don't decide which project to take based on which one is going to bring us the most money. Fun is always the breaker. I think that people do their best work when they're having fun. And I think that sometimes as an industry, we forget to have fun. We, we have a beautiful product with many beautiful stories. I hear too many conversations in the jewelry industry and people aren't having enough fun. And that's on us. It's not anybody else's job to make it fun for us. It's our job to make it fun for us. And we have the most fun when we're learning and when we're trying new things and when we're experimenting and accepting that failure is part of experimentation. And when you put that back into your work world and when you let yourself fall back in love with your customers, it's fun. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.